I don't have whatever to really you feel, see anything. Whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. But we are now live. Okay. Good. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Joe Zimhart. His last name is spelled S-Z-I-M-H-A-R-T, pronounced Zimhart. And I, he came to my attention after I was kind of surfing the web and came across Steve Hassan's YouTube channel. And I saw that he had just published a book. The title of the book we're going to talk about tonight is Santa Fe, Bill Tate, and Me, How an Artist Became a Cult Interventionist. I just completed it this morning. It's a fascinating book. It's full of chock full of wisdom about alternate religions is a nice way of saying it. You could also categorize them as cults. But uh, Joe has had quite a lot of experience and put a lot of his wisdom into the book. So I'm delighted that he agreed to the interview. Joe, are you there? Yeah, I am. Thanks for inviting me, Bill. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Um, For people who may not have heard of you, can you talk a little bit about what led you to write this book? I mean, I know that's a long, that's part of what's in the book because it's kind of a memoir, but uh, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, sure. I I started the project almost 10 years ago, and and the idea was to uh, answer the question, how did you get into deprogramming you know what got you into exit counseling it sounds like an interesting field and I thought you know it's, it's a part of my life that, that I wanted to record mainly for my daughters because it's dedicated to my three daughters because I I wanted to let them know something about what the old man did you know in, in that period of time that I was away from home and um, the uh, and, and that means that the intervention work I did demanded a lot of traveling. Uh, for instance, I, I had to, I was flown down to Australia about 18 times uh, to Europe, a dozen times to Canada, to Trinidad and all over the States to do, to do these interventions. Um, so yeah, the, the book is, is a way to tell that story. Uh, I did an earlier version of it that was rejected by publishers, but it was way too much information. I had like, 200 footnotes this time i don't have any footnotes and i shrunk it down to keep it kind of more readable hopefully it is um but you know like they say it is what it is right now it's a record and um, i'm planning another book that might be a little bit more formal approach as to how to explain how cults appear and what they are and how to uh, deconstruct them, that kind of uh, thing, more of an educational approach to it. But, so yeah. you have a book upcoming, but you've also written a few academic uh, papers on cults as well mm-hmm. that have been published in academic journals, correct? Yeah, I, I've had uh, articles published in journals and, and, and books, especially the, uh, the, the cultic studies journal. And, and, you know, I've done uh, book reviews. I've had some things published in the skeptical inquire over the years, um, I mean, nothing heavily academic. I, I have lectured at academic venues like the Association for the Sociology of Religion. I've lectured at their annual conferences twice, you know, with panels of sociologists about this cult thing. And, and uh, so so I've been in the academic mix, but I'm not an academic. I'm, I mean, my only training, my degree is in fine arts and that's it. You know, I I work as a mental health professional, but I got that training on the job. So I've worked in a psychiatric hospital now for the last 20 years as a uh, crisis caseworker. But but yeah, my my uh, primary identity is artist. And that's really kind of what led you out to Santa Fe. Would you agree with that? Is that what can you talk about? Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, I I was uh, I had a degree from the university of Dayton, uh, where I was switched from an engineering major to fine arts. And I, I got a bachelor's in arts and sciences and I took some art courses to get started in fine arts. I went to the Pennsylvania Academy after that and, and got a certificate of accomplishment in painting there in 1975. And I moved to Santa Fe right after that, because Santa Fe at the time was the second or third largest art market in the United States. Um, as a small city, about 50,000 at the time, it um, had maybe 200 art galleries. It had an international presence in terms of people that came there to buy art. About half the art that was sold there was Western or Native American type of art. But uh, there were 
continental galleries, meaning they sold modern art and, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was a vibrant town, a lot of art, and, and that's what attracted me to it. And uh, you were kind of there before uh, New Mexico became as fashionable. Is that true? Yeah. Um, when I got there, there was something called the Santa Fe style emerging. And uh, by the late 70s, it became a thing. Um, and there were books written about it in the 80s. Uh, there were people decorating their suites in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, Santa Fe style. You know, turquoise jewelry was, uh, was a thing. Uh, uh, buying these coyotes howling, you know, f carved by folk artists was a thing. Uh, so, yeah, Santa Fe became um, a, a, a favorite, you know, among tourists. You know, the tourists I talked to that came there said that Santa Fe was their second favorite place to visit in the United States. You know, New York might be the first or San Francisco might be the first or New Orleans might be the first. But Santa Fe was their second. And you I think you say in your book, interestingly, that you really the trajectory of your life changed the first day you arrived in Santa Fe. Correct. Yeah. Looking back, it was, you know, if you believe in fate, you, you know, I could put the pieces together and said there was a hand of something in my life. You know, I drove into town. Um, I, 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 I took a runaway 16 year old from from Dayton, Ohio, back home to Española, which is north of there. Her mother asked me to drive her home. And uh, I did. Um and I camped out. And the, the first day I spent in Santa Fe, um, I mean, I almost had a, a major wreck coming into town down the ski basin. My my uh, U-joint in the car spun out, severed the brake line, and uh, I had no way of stopping. The gears didn't work. The brake didn't work. The emergency wasn't attached very well. And I was careening down a mountain road, and somehow I brought the car to a, the truck to a stop. Anyway, I got it fixed, and I got into town the next day, and I met this guy, Bill Tate, who's on the cover of this book uh, that I published. And that, that is the only picture I have of myself with Bill. He became a very good friend of mine over 12 years. But I met him the first day in town. While I was in his gallery, um, I noticed there was a book, um, Mag Manly P. Hall's The Secret Teachings of All Ages, that he had, uh, that he hadn't read for years. And there was a magazine on the cover was this um, feature article on Nicholas Rorich. He was an artist, a Russian artist, died in 1947, who with his wife began the Agni Yoga Society, which was a major theosophical movement from the 20s. And I read that article and that, along with Manly Peace Hall's book, which I borrowed from Bill that first day, got me thinking about theosophy and the artists that were involved in it, because I had heard about this. Uh, studying modern art, uh, Kandinsky was somewhat involved with theosophy, Mondrian was, Franz Kupka, William Butler Yeats. I mean, the list is long of modern artists that were influenced by this esoteric approach to spirituality. And, and Eastern religion was involved in it. Uh, transcendentalism and all of that kind of thing. The, the early Rosicrucian movement was involved in it. So that got me going. And, and also the first day in town, uh, after I left Tate's gallery, I went to this bar and um, uh, this fellow introduced me to his uncle as a resource. And because I was going to do construction work and that uncle owned the old I am center. And um, I eventually worked for that uncle and got to know the I am cult through the working in their old center there, and I studied their teachings. Uh, the I Am was a spinoff of Theosophy. It was also a proto-fascist, I mean, a, yeah, proto-fascist organization. It was a spinoff of uh, partly of New Thought religion, Theosophy, and something called the Silver Shirts. And if you look at William Pelley's Silver Shirts, they were American fascists that modeled themselves very much on the brown shirts that were emerging in, in, uh, in Germany at the time, in the 20s, in the 30s. Um, so I got curious about that religion. Uh, I met some other people at a uh, small mall there who were part of this Church Universal and Triumphant. And it was years later that they invited me to, to come to meetings and, and all of that. And, and this Church Universal and Triumphant became the cult that most um, uh, 
damaged me, so to speak, or got me involved in what I would call a self-sealing social system over for a period of about a year and a half. It was that experience from 19, late 78 until the middle of 1980 that taught me what it means to be, quote, brainwashed, unquote, and, and to be under the spell or the control of, of a kind of a transcendental belief system that, that's deceptive and, and quite uh, manipulative. So, you know, it was from that experience that I began to study what cults were about in the early 80s and trying to sort it out. Uh, the Church Universal and Triumphant used Buddhism, used Hinduism, used fundamentalist Christianity. It used theosophy. It used new thought. It used chanting. I mean, it combined a bunch of stuff. It, it claimed to represent the perennial religion. The leader channeled uh, beings in the ascended world from all the religions. Um, it was it was a crazy mix. And um, deconstructing that brought me into a wide array of um, resources to, to look at what world religions were about and also what new religions were about. So anyway, to get back to your question, all of that was triggered by the first day that I was in Santa Fe. Right. <laughs> had, I not, built a, you know, had I picked a different day and met a different gallery, my life would have probably been not the same. Much different. And I mean, the I am cold, I think it was, was it Elizabeth Clare Prophet? Was she the head at the time in 78 to 80? I don't know. No, no. Okay. But no, they, no, she was, no, she was the head of a spinoff of the IM called called Church Universal and Triumphant. Okay. And it's also called Summit Lighthouse. So she was the leader of that after her husband died from 1973 until she died, you know, uh, I guess within the last decade or so. Um, uh, actually, she was the head of it until she developed Alzheimer's and, and couldn't function in, into the 90s. Uh, she was the leader. Uh, so the IM cult that I'm talking about was founded in the early 1930s by Edna and Guy Ballard. And so, so yeah. that's a different group. There was a lot of tension between the IM and the Church Universal and Triumphant, but the IM claimed that they were the last group in that line, that no more ascended master groups were going to appear after them because they were the true and only one. So that the dozens of ascended master groups that spun off of that are considered fake by the IM movement, including this church universal. So I hope that helps explain it. It's a little well, complicated. <laughs> I did. When I looked at the Ballards and I saw them, they were in the white kind of suits. They kind yeah. of looked like uh, Christian evangelists of that time in a way, but mm-hmm. they definitely had some. So he thought he was the resur- reincarnation of George Washington, right? Wasn't that? And that seemed yeah. to be a theme within your book is all these different different types of cult environments. These guys all think they're past lives they were super famous people or whatever but uh yeah yeah his wife um edna ballard claimed to be the reincarnation of uh benjamin franklin right that's right and so you could switch in other words you could switch genders in 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 reincarnation yeah and even uh rorick himself was an artist as well and uh I think yeah, he, he went was actually, to- uh, Rorick was quite good. He, he sold a lot of work to wealthy people. Um, he wasn't considered a great artist by the critics or, or by his Russian peers, but but a lot of Russians loved his work, and and so did New Yorkers. Uh, you know, so he was a, he was a competent illustrator. I mean, his work is good. I mean, wasn't he the one who inspired the tracing board on the back of the dollar bill? I thought that he got Wallace to put that on the dollar bill. I thought there was some story about yeah, that. Yeah, the, the story goes the story goes that he convinced Wallace, Henry Wallace, who was Secretary of Agriculture under Roosevelt at the time in the thirties, um uh that 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 all seeing eye on top of the pyramid needed to be put on there. You know, it was part of the, the esoteric Egyptian eye of Horus or whatever, and, and it was part of the occult uh background of of the real meaning of the United States, that, that it was under overseen by God and by God's emissaries. In other words, his angels, his, his masters and all of that are guiding the United States in some way. And that all seeing eye is there watching us a um, little spooky, but it became part of our dollar bill. So that's right. the story behind it. Yeah. And I think wasn't Rorick, didn't he influence Roosevelt's wife too? Was didn't she, Oh no. She said it was Besant. She made some kind of uh Mm-hmm. Was she a channeler? I don't remember. Uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt? Yeah. 
Yeah, Eleanor was was a progressive person and, uh, um, you know, interested somewhat in theosophy. Uh, she read the Alice A. Bailey books, which Bailey, was that's right. Alice Bailey uh, lived from the late 1800s until about 1949. I think she passed away. But she channeled a series of about 20 books from an ascended master called Joa Kul that she called the Tibetan. And the Tibetan, you know, did these abstruse kind of channelings like externalization of the hierarchy, for instance. And and Bailey was known for her quasi-anti-Semitic stance. And what that means is that, that, that she said that the time of devotion, which is the Jewish way of life, is, is disappearing, that that way is gone and a new way of love wisdom is coming in, you know, like a new age. So she was a herald of something called the new age. And that that old devotional system is, is gone. So that that kind of put her in the anti-Semitic framework. And um, uh, I, I mean, she wasn't as fervently anti-Semitic, let's say, as Hitler became. You know, that's not what she was about. But she was displacing the time of the Jews, you know, with the way she taught. And um, uh, so. So her work be, was taken up by a lot of new age progressive people in, in the United States. And, and, and Eleanor Roosevelt would have meetings in, in the White House and they would have people like this. You know, a lot of wealthy uh, and, and, and high level politicians are into this esoteric stuff. You know, they've, they've been initiated into like skulls and bones and, and, and crap like that. You know, or I shouldn't say crap, but clubs like that. Um, that that other people might find silly if you aren't part of it and you understand what what all of it's about. But, you know, it's all kind of based on Freemasonry and secret teachings and levels of of awareness and and, and all of that kind of culture. Um, So so she uh, took um, Alice Bailey's great invocation, which is the central prayer of something called the new group of world servers, which functions under Alice Bailey's teachings. And, and there's a, there was, has been a presence of new group of world servers in the United Nations. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that the United Nations represents them in any way. It just means that the United Nations houses a lot of different kinds of clubs and esoteric stuff because it's, you know, there's different places where you can go meditate there right. and you can do all kinds of stuff. There's so, a meditation room there, right? With the yeah, and, and, and it was for instance, it was set up by Sri Chinmoy. The meditation room was one of them. Uh, and Chinmoy claimed to be the United Nations guru at one time, which the United Nations came out and told him to cease and desist, claiming he's the United Nations guru because he wasn't. Wow. Um, you know, they don't have any such thing. So uh, it, it, it's it's there's a lot of mixed messages going on about conspiracies about the United Nations, but you have to be really careful about about this kind of thing because the conspiracies are fed by both sides of this debate because it makes them feel more powerful to know this stuff. Right. And, and you have to be very careful about how that parses out. It's not as simple, you know, or as um, systematic as, as you might think it is. So your kind of your thing was really the uh, Guy Ballard, but also Rorich. So you were always in, or when you were involved, it was the Agni Yoga uh, yeah. tradition, correct? Yeah, that was a lot of what I focused on. I read all those books. I had about twenty years more of them. I had, you know, copies of of Rorich's paintings, eight by tens, framed around my you know, room. Uh, I emulated his style of painting for about a year, but, but, you know, I kind of gave that up. Um, uh, so he, he was, uh, an inspiration, you might say to me until the early eighties, a book came out in 1980 that a, a photographer in New York turned me on to called Russian art and American money. You know, and by that time I was soured on theosophy somewhat anyway, and got out of the Church Universal cult, and I started looking deeper into it. And when I read Russian Art and American Money, it, it, it is a big chapter on Rorich and exposing his relationship with wealthy Americans and why he was um, um, uh, banned by the U.S. government from returning to this country, you know, and I, I, I looked into the background of that. Um, you know, he reneged, apparently didn't pay his taxes on all the paintings he sold, for one. And the other one, uh, the U.S. government hired him to help lead an expedition 
1936 to the Far East in Mongolia to look for plants and seeds that could be uh, useful in the American Dust Bowl in the Southwest, you know, to, to regenerate the vegetation there because we had this huge drought back then. You know, the Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck was a story about what happened to people during that period. Um, Rorick, on his trip over there, was complained about by the other scientists because all he was interested in was spiritual sites and stuff. And he didn't seem to know a damn thing about seeds and dry things. And the only reason he was there, because Henry Wallace, who was a devotee of Rorick, uh, Secretary of Agriculture under Roosevelt, convinced Roosevelt to send him, you know. Right. So they spent all this money on Rorich and, and you know, so they, they said the government soured on Rorich. Henry Wallace got tremendously embarrassed by his relationship with Rorich because the Washington press got a hold of something called the Guru Papers, his letters back and forth to, to Rorich, which are very strange and, you know, almost QAnon sounding in a way, the way he was writing. And uh, uh, it embarrassed him and, and, and it hurt his campaign to run for president under the Progressive Party. Oh, um and then Rorich set up a center in northern India in uh, Kashmir area and uh, later and never came back to the United States. Um, he was lauded in Russia, however. Yeah. Because, right. No, you said that there you showed the picture of him and his wife in their Agni Institute or whatever. But yeah, he was also influential. Yeah. yeah, he was influential in the States. There was the Rorich Institute in New York. You said he visited that. And I thought it was yeah. interesting that he focused on Kanchenjunga which you, when you did your world tour, you saw that, but that was also what Crow, Alistair Crowley tried to ascend. That was mm -hmm. one of his yeah. uh, things. So it was, I yeah, saw I, I noticed your background on Crowley. I've read quite a bit about Crowley and, and but we can talk about that later. I, you know, I've Sorry. done anyway, I, you know, I have had done interventions with uh, Crowley centered cults. In, in oh, really? Course. Interesting. I, oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't know, know that. We're getting to that after you kind of came out of your, yeah. Would you call it maybe a new age phase or a theosophy mm -hmm. phase? I mean, uh, but you were doing like, I think that the the IM movement, didn't they do the decreeing where they really chant very fast and are supposed mm -hmm. to make changes in the world through this kind of uh, esoteric chanting? Yeah. Yeah. Let me explain that. Um, they called it decreeing. And, and the idea comes both from the Christian Bible and from Eastern teachings about mantras. Okay, so if you combine those two, um, you know, in, in Isaiah 45, 11, for instance, it says, command ye me according to the works of my hands. And, and so it, it's, it's a mistranslation because later translations corrected that. That's only in the old King James. And, and the idea that was interpreted by the New Thought religions that came out in the 19th century and by I Amherst is that that meant that God was giving us a signal that we could command God's energy. And if we did that in full faith, God would have to fulfill his promise. You know, that's the idea from the Christian slant. So the Christian prosperity gospel is based a lot on that, on those kinds of passages in the Bible. Right. And you still see that going on today. That's a very popular American type of spin on Christianity, the prosperity gospel. Right. Um, the other source is the mantras. And now mantra in its raw translation means to cast a spell. But mantra in its real effect means that you set up a system of words which are very rigorously um, put together in Sanskrit. And that's linked up to some god. Now, there's about 33,000 gods in India or whatever, so you can pick all kinds of things. But that energy to link it up to a god and saying the mantra will bring about an effect, whether it's healing, prosperity, uh, retribution on your enemies. I mean, you know, prayer can cut both ways. You can pray for the downfall of your enemy and you can pray for the uplifting of your soul. You know, you can do all kinds of things with prayer, mantras, decreeing or whatever. So the, the, the decreeing thing comes out of the affirmations mainly that were developed during the New Thought era of religions from the late 19th century. Um, affirmations became a thing, especially when this Frenchman, Coué, who was a New Thought guy in the early 20th century, came up with a French thing that, that in English is translated, in every day and in every way, I am getting better, better, and better. 
Now, millions of Europeans and, and, and uh, um, Americans in the early 20th century were chanting this thing, whether they believed in New Thought or not. It was just a thing, you know. So what the I Amers did was take these formulas and expand them. Some of them were very long. Some were very short. And they began to speak them out loud because they said that, you know, if you speak them out loud, it sets up a physical vibration that would affect reality in a certain way, you know, and so that's called sympathetic magic. In other words, if I, you know, if I slam my hand down here and you hear this noise, and if I think that's going to scare my neighbor across the street, it will, you know, that's, that's the magical idea behind the vibration thing. So, um, uh, and, and these things were color coded in the I am religion. For instance, they had blue decrees and pink decrees and, gold decrees and uh, white decrees. And, and each one of the colors had a specific energy associated with it. Blue was power. Pink was love. Uh, uh, yellow was wisdom. Uh, white was spirituality, you know, that kind of thing. Green, green was healing and green was prosperity. So if you did a green decree, you would do a healing decree or you would do a prosperity decree. Now, the more you repeated it and the more will you put behind it, uh, the more power it would have, you know, so more is more. <laughs> right. So let, let me give you an example. Uh, one of the, the violet decrees that, that I learned initially when I got into this system, it goes, I am a being of violet fire. I am the purity God desires. Okay, so it's kind of like rapping. It, they, they rhyme a lot. However, when you actually say it in, in with other people, it sounds like this. So it sounds like rapid auctioneering is what the decreeing sounds like. And and you can imagine a, a room of three or four thousand people doing this, what that feels like. It's like a buzzing sound. And it, and and if you do it for about a half hour, you get a buzzing feeling in your head. And and if and, and that feeling is is considered interpreted as spirituality, as a spiritual infusion within the person. And it gives you the sense that there's something working going on there. So that's that's basically the the power uh, prayer of the I Am movement and the Church Universal and Triumphant and dozens and dozens of other similar groups that use right. decreeing and mantra yoga. It's called mantra yoga as a core of their practice. So I hope that helps. And, no, it does, because I've heard it online. You can actually... Some of the either I think it's the Church Universal Triumphant has some of the decreeing yes. happening. It it sounds yeah, it sounds like a chant, but also yeah, it's just like you said, it's very unusual. But the people in that group really think that it can create change kind of in the world. It's kind of like a magical chant in some yeah. ways. Um, so you kind of became disillusioned, uh, really for your fortune in many ways because you weren't in there for very long after a couple of years. Can you explain how that kind of disenthrallment took place and led to becoming an occult, uh, occult interventionist? Sure. Uh, most people in these high demand groups are somewhat ambivalent about being in them because they know that the people on the outside see them as cults, you know, for the most part. Often there's tension with family members once a person gets in because, you know, obviously uh, any mother, father, brother, sister that isn't a believer is going to think you're going over the edge here, right? So it gets difficult to communicate with family, so that can cause some ambivalence. And so you tend to keep this stuff to yourself when you're in a group like that. And, and you know, part of the um, wisdom behind uh, occultism says that if you get into this world of theosophy and Gnosticism, and all of that kind of thing, that you should practice something. Um, it, it's a kind of a mantra that you say to yourself, to know, to dare, to do, and to be silent. So, you know, yeah. so there's this, there's this that, that goes back to Eliphas. That goes back to Eliphas Levy. That's the... Yes, uh, it goes way back there. And, and, yes. You know, and it comes... Blavatsky studied Eliphas Levi or Levy's Le stuff. You know, but it even goes back to the Freemasons because you take a vow of silence under the penalty of death, that you don't reveal what goes on in the brotherhood. And that goes back to the Rosicrucians. It goes back to the ancient Egyptian mysteries. I mean, this is nothing new that you keep your club secrets secret. You know, that, that's 
common. The CIA does it. The you know the FBI does it. Uh, the Freemasons do it, and, and, and you know a lot of modern cults do it. You know you keep you maintain silence about this high wisdom. And the other thing comes from the Christian religion. You do not cast your pearls before swine. You know that, that that's right. another thing. That's a very much the same thing. Right. So you have this kind of you know uh, you called it a culture in the book, but. Mm-hmm. How, what was it like trying to come out of that? I mean, it was kind of a diff, difficult, I'm sure it's a difficult process for anybody. I've talked to a bunch of yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientologists, and how it changed really their way of looking at the world and themselves. Yeah, it, it does. The one word I can tell you, it's painful. Um, and when you look at the theories behind mind changing, you know, when somebody's strong belief system gets disconfirmed, there's there's and, and they see it. They see evidence for disconfirmation. They go into cognitive dissonance in general. When people suffer cognitive dissonance, meaning they get confused at what's real, what's not. They tend to retreat back to the belief system, begin to rationalize it. You know, you, you can see this happening with this assault on, on, on Congress with a lot of the people now, rather than saying they mis- made a mistake. What do they do? They double down and 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 reinforce what they did as if they're going to, as if it was the right thing to do, you know? So this is normal human behavior to reinforce your own beliefs when there's disconfirming evidence for it. But some people begin to see that like I did, that the world I'm in, there's something is wrong within this because I saw conflicts within the movements. Agni Yoga did not agree with the I am movement. The I am movement did not agree with church universal and triumphant. The Alice Bailey movement had a lot of things that were very different about it. And yet they were all supposedly channeling the same ascended masters. You know, you see my point. They were supposed to be unified. They were supposed to represent the perennial wisdom, which was, you know, released to mankind in ancient times, you know, 60,000 years ago or something, um, which is another bogus idea. But however, that was the concept that there was a brotherhood of all religions, right? In theosophy. Yet all I saw was fractured groups that were getting more and more fractured. You know, almost like in Christianity, you, you see, what, 1,600 denominations today? You know <laughs> what least. I mean? Yeah. You know, so, you know, the, the idea of one gospel is kind of a myth. But, but you know, people want to hold on to that. And uh, so, so I began to fall apart within about this whole thing. Uh, my first wife divorced me because I was involved in this because she said, you know, you're not the man I married. You're, you're, you're different. I was different. I was 24 seven involved in this, this crazy stuff that, that I see as crazy now. Um, so I was having panic attacks at night. I was getting up like four in the morning with stomach cramps. You know, when I started thinking about leaving this, uh, it was, it was, uh, uh, a confusing time to me because I, I didn't know if I could trust myself in even doing research. You know, what was fake news? What wasn't fake news? What was real scholarship? What was not? And I had to slow myself down somehow. And I didn't have anyone to turn to at the time. I, you know, I think the reason I became, you know, a researcher in this area is I wanted to become the person that I wish I could have met then, you know, to talk to, Interesting. Right. you know, right. and, uh, so, you know, I did what a lot of people do. You turn to what's familiar to get, get some help. Um, I write this about this in the book. Um, I grew up in a Catholic tradition, so I'm very familiar with it. I was an altar boy. I could recite the mass in Latin, you know, back in the day and, and all of that sort of thing. And I was uh, familiar with that culture. Um, there was a nunnery near St. John's College in Santa Fe that was um, uh, Carmelite nuns, that, which don't see because they're behind closed doors they're they're um uh hidden but there was one nun who was there in the main office that would talk to the public that would come in to give gifts or to give messages to the nuns that are that are in the cloistered area and this lady's name was sister Teresa when i knew her she was 64 years old 65 she was about four foot ten she became a nun um when she was around 60 uh, after she had raised four sons and, and you know, her husband had passed away, uh, her family was doing very well. She decided to dedicate her life to God this way, you know. So it was a almost a Hindu tradition because, it, you know, in Hinduism, you do you become a householder and then you go on a spiritual journey. 
after you fulfilled all your dharma. And so she was almost following a Hindu pattern in a way. Uh, but she was a sweet woman, and I would just stop and talk to her now and then. I even gave her a gift of one of my paintings. And so while I was hiking up on the mountain up there, Sun Mountain, I, I decided to stop in and talk to her and just unload about this conflict I was going on, you know, this spiritual conflict. She had no idea what I was talking about, theosophy, Rosicrucians, you know, and all this stuff. I was babbling for about 15 minutes. And she just slowed me down, and she said, Joseph, can I pray with you? And so she did. She just started a normal Christian-type prayer, invoking God and the saints as Catholics do, and and asked, you know, for help and all of this. And and for some reason, I just started crying like hell, you know, when, when I was there. It just sort of emptied out. And when I left there, you know, I thanked her, and that day – I don't know how to explain this other than it's a psychosomatic reaction. That, that kindness she showed, I think, just helped me relax inside. And I felt what Mormons might call a burning in the bosom, which I was on fire. My whole body felt heated up. And it lasted hours, you know. And uh, I even took a cold shower for about 45 minutes, just standing there in this cold shower, just trying to chill out. And, and I felt different. Uh, the next day, uh, it, it, everything settled down. You know, it, I didn't feel like suddenly joining the Catholic Church again or anything. That wasn't what this was about. Um, it wasn't about Catholicism. It was about um, some kind of human connection that helped me release this. I needed a relationship, you know. And and so, I, I you know, I think that's where love is. It doesn't exist as an abstraction. It's always in a relationship. It's in the real time and real world. It's not something you you send with cards and stuff, you know. So, um, but you wrote, yeah, you wrote in the book that was I think you use this term often, quoting Wittgenstein, which is the fly figures its way out of the fly bottle. Or fly yeah, bottle. she helped me to to somehow begin to get out of the fly bottle. In other words, out of that closed system in my head. And after that point, I began to look back at the critical books on theosophy that I had already looked at, you know, but but felt different about them. And and when I read them and read about a critical book about the I Am movement and others, I was seeing it with fresh eyes, you know, and I was able to absorb and extend the information without feeling guilty or, or uh, uh, impeded in any kind of a psychological way. You know, in other words, I could entertain doubts now healthy doubts and and that's what that's what it was it was it was a matter of of being freed up to do real academic research and sorting this stuff out which took me years because i i read a lot of books that that were useless to me after i read them and it took me a while to compile really uh useful information or what i call pragmatic information that i could build on and um and you know one thing led to another i began to write a little bit about my experience. I got I got to know some ex-members of Church Universal. They introduced me to some parents that were concerned that wanted to talk to me about my research. My name got around, uh, cult awareness networks that were around, and I suddenly got swept up in that world as a resource person. And then the programmers and exit counselors called me to come help on cases and I thought I would try it out because it sounded interesting. Before I knew it, I was getting one call after another, and it turned into a living for 12 years. I actually did nothing else to make a living except some artwork, um, traveling around doing that kind of work. It, it, I, you know, it was um, – that's why I wrote the memoir. I wanted to kind of capture a little bit about that period. Right, and, I mean, you include so many references to the books you found helpful in, the, in your book, and I think that's also – a great reference. Like there's a lot of, I would say this book is chock full of wisdom from what you've learned. So I highly recommend people. This book may be the book, the personage that you could read before you get into a cult. So I would suggest <laughs> people read this, but uh, can you talk, you mean, you talk about some of the case studies you talk, I mean, you were actually arrested and uh, mm-hmm. tried up in Idaho. Can you talk about some of the, the cult mechanics of, well, do you call it exiting or there's different terms, deprogramming? Right. Well, basically, an intervention is, is just 
getting an opportunity to educate someone. That's all it is. Cause, cause what you're talking about, you know, some journalists call this information disease. You know, when, when somebody is living under a, you know, seeing patterns where there aren't any, that's called apophenia. That's a kind of a mental disease. You know, you see a face of somebody in a cloud where there isn't really a face up there, but they think they, that it has something to do with face. Uh, people see constellations in the sky and develop mythologies about them. I mean, we do this all the time where human beings are pattern making creatures. We do it to make sense of the world and sometimes make good sense. And sometimes it's just BS, you know, but we do it all the time. You know, we always look for these patterns. Um, we need to do it in science. We have to look for patterns and see if they match up with reality. Uh, so, so, um, yeah, where was that question going? Well, I was uh, just like your your approach to interventions. I mean, there was right. differing approaches. You had talked about this guy who would literally kidnap people and kind of hold Oh, that them. was uh, Ted Patrick and a number of others. And I got caught up in that world a little bit. It was part of my career for about six years. I uh, would help on cases where someone had been held against their will. You know, my goal when coming in after that was done was to try to convince the person to talk freely and get rid of the security, you know, which happened most of the time. But it didn't always happen. And so you could get into legal trouble. Um, uh, but for the most part, the interventions were, you know, they might start by surprise, but the cult member, so to speak, had control. If they wanted me to leave, if they didn't want to talk, then it was over. So the skill was to gain rapport and get them interested in information quick enough that the cult member would say, okay, I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm going to give you two hours or I'm going to give you five minutes or, you know, because my parents want me to talk to you or my wife wants me to talk to you, I'll talk to you for today and that's it, you know. But then the, the job of the interventionist was to keep it going because it usually took several days at least to get enough valuable information out there to reflect on for this thing, this brain, to begin to shift the neural nets around and see things in a different way. It doesn't happen easily and it doesn't happen quickly. There's no snapping people out. You know, Now, at some point in 10, 20, 30 hours of discussion, sometimes people will suddenly come to an awareness and they begin talking about the group in the past tense. And once I start hearing that, I realize, well, we've turned a corner here. You know, they're not in the group psychologically anymore. You know, they might have emotional ties to it. They might need to clean up a lot, which could take some work. But I've gotten their point of view expanded enough where they no longer fit into a constricted mentality. And that's the goal is to expand a person's point of view during intervention. Uh, because most cults are very constricted when it comes to information and what you believe and who you believe. Right. And um, I mean, you covered uh, so many different groups in this. I mean, you talk about Scientology, Unification Church. And so you're kind of on their list as what they would call a deprogrammer um, yeah. and try to harass you or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I go through a lot of harassment uh, in, in different ways. I mean, the, the, the group I was in, the, I am in church universal. I found later on from ex members that were deep into the group that, that I was on the, the chanting list where they would decree, you know, for my karma to descend on me and blah, 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 and all of that, you know? And uh, so there's that metaphysical attack, which I didn't feel, but they, they you know, was there. Um, I would get phone calls sometimes from groups that, you know, a member that would scream at me or threaten me or whatever. And, and I usually handled those pretty well and they wouldn't ever call me back again. Um, I'm not easy to rattle. Uh, maybe that's why I work in a psych emergency department. You know, I, I stay pretty calm around pretty active patients that, that are difficult and, uh, um, well, I'm not I, saying that that's anything special, but it's just the way I'm made up. Yeah. Well, I thought that was interesting in some of your you know, interventions that sometimes these people weren't in the grips of a cult or a co co coercive environment, but were not mentally well off, too. So that was kind of like your... That's true. Assessment. There are people... Now, now, people that are really unstable tend to get kicked out of these groups. 
I mean, the one thing about uh, cults is they want to be efficient and they want deployable agents. They don't want people that are a load, that are a problem. So crazy people get kicked out of cults. It's a misnomer to think that just because the teachings are a little crazy to you and their behavior is odd doesn't mean that the people are crazy. They tend to be like you and I, you know, or the average person on the street in general. They can function very well, you know, when, when they present at grocery stores or, or, or have to lecture about their group. They can be very convincing and, and very nice and charming and, and whatever. They're not dysfunctional, you know, which is what crazy means. Um so, the, the, you know, people in these groups uh, tend to be highly motivated. Uh, it depends on the nature of the group, whether it's very intellectual or not, whether, it, you know, it demands a high IQ or not. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a thousand different kinds of versions of this out there that can attract thousands of different kinds of people. Uh, so there's something out there tailor-made just about for anybody. You know, I'll give you an example. I did an intervention um with um, a young medical student uh, who was in, you know, graduate medical school. Um, he was in a group in, in uh, Louisiana associated with a professor that he had. And the name of the group escapes me now, uh, but the professor had about 30 students in these kind of meetings, like a club that would come to hear him talk. And he, he was having extraordinary control over them. Um, his main uh, focus uh, or, or teaching, you know, like there's Aleister Crowley, but this was George Gurdjieff. You've heard of uh, Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff, yeah. Yeah, Gurdjieff. yeah he, he Gurdjieff. you know, lived from the late 19th century and died like in 1949, I believe. Uh, but he was an infamous uh, spiritual teacher, guru, cult leader. Um, during the 20s especially and, and, and the 30s, he, he was well known. Um, you know, the great uh, architect, uh, uh, oh, God, I can't remember now. But anyway, he had a lot of high-level people involved in Gurdjieff teachings. They were called the fourth way, the fourth way teachings. So this, this, this professor, medical professor, was using Gurdjieff teachings and had these people under his thrall, these students, and their, their sacrament, their ritual <laughs> that they would do at the end of each session was to drink a shot of Jack Daniels, you know, whiskey. Um, so I did an intervention, and, and this guy was very arrogant, you know, the young man. He, you know, he didn't think I could teach him anything. When, when I first met him, he was just standing there. He wouldn't even sit down. You know, his family introduced me to him. And there was a female uh, uh, interventionist there that, that brought me in. Um, he wasn't held against his will, but he knew that if he didn't talk to me, his parents weren't going to support him in medical school anymore because he was wasting his time going to these, this thing, you know, this cult thing all the time. So it, it took about two hours for me to gain rapport with him. And, you know, and then he finally relaxed because he knew I knew a lot about Gurdjieff. You know, I had read uh, meetings with remarkable men. I'd read a lot of the Gurdjieff work. I had already done interventions with other Gurdjieff groups. And so, um, you know, and I knew that the so-called Samun Brotherhood that Gurdjieff claimed to get his teachings from didn't exist. It was like Madame Blavatsky's Ascended Masters or something. It was some bogus Sufi group that, that Gurdjieff talked about. Um, so, you know, once I began to deconstruct some of that, he got very interested and relaxed, you know, and within about two days, he, he decided that's it. He's not going back to this thing at the school anymore. And um, I don't know if that group broke up uh, right after that uh, because the word got out that there was this exposure of, of what this guy was doing. Uh, but it didn't last very long. I think it broke apart in, in the next five years or so. And you have a lot of information about a lot of these people that still some have some credibility. Like there's Jay Z Knight is around. You yeah. talked about you exposed Blavatsky as a clever plagiarist. Gurdjieff is a clever liar. I mean, you've co covered Sai Baba. Like I grew yeah. up in Northern California, where it was just a hodgepodge of different religions. And I knew people who were followers of all kinds of Indian gurus of all different tribes. Guru Ma, I think, was the woman's name, and. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. just everywhere. Benjamin Krem is one that was interesting. That I, I uh, met him twice. I met Krem twice. 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about him, please? Benjamin Krem. Uh, he died uh, not long ago. He was an artist uh, in England, uh, Scottish, English. And I think he was in London at the time. He was a disciple or a student of the Alice Bailey teachings that we mentioned, which was a form of theosophy. Sometime in the 70s, I believe, he began to get inspired by the being called Maitreya. And he began to channel Maitreya. And Maitreya is the Buddhist tradition, is the coming Buddha, which is supposed to be like thousands, tens of thousands of years in the future. But a lot of cult people claim Maitreya is here now, you know, for whatever reason. And, and Krem was the main one. So Krem taught that Maitreya was the Christ, the avatar of the age that was going to herald the new age coming in. So in 1982, I believe it was, he, him and his organization uh, took out full-page ads in four major uh, uh, newspapers around the world, the New York Times, the, the L.A. Times, the London Times, and I think Japan, the Tokyo, I'm not sure. But, but this was expensive, full-page ads. The Christ is now here. You know, right. I remember this. Of, yeah, I remember a lot of copy about how he was going to appear, and and Benjamin Krem is kind of like as John the Baptist is going to announce him, and he would appear through the clouds, meaning he would come in an airplane, and he would land somewhere and announce himself, but he would have to be accepted by mankind first, and so so Krem's job was to convince enough people to accept him, so that he could appear, right. And, and so he went on a lecture tour and he came to Santa Fe. He lectured at the Sheraton there. And I went to the first lecture he gave in 1982 there. And uh, I remember uh, Krem is a white haired little guy and, and he was kind of soft spoken and, you know, charming in some way. And he talked about all this theosophy stuff and, you know, the coming Maitreya. And, you know, there were about maybe a hundred some people in the audience. Halfway through, there were maybe 50 people left. And toward the, the the last quarter of the talk, there were maybe about 30 people left there because they just started leaving because he sounded kind of nutty. Um, but there were some people there that were totally into him and just eyes wide open and glowing and listening. And uh, and then what he did was he said he would have Maitreya, the Christ, overshadow him. He would sit there and he would stare into your eyes and allow the light of the Maitreya to come into you. You know, so people were having all kinds of reactions, you know, when he stared at them, you know, and, and this is comes from auto suggestion and suggestion. It's a real common theme in hypnotic relationships, you know, that's been studied before. So he was taking advantage of that. But, but the people there thought it was a real spiritual thing. Now, I didn't know what it was at the time because I was early in my research in 1982 about all this. And, and so I sat there and he went right by me. He didn't look into my eyes, you know. I was right there toward the front row. So I thought, what the hell? You know, he's moving this way toward the left of the room. So I got up and I moved all the way to the left of the room because I was going to wanted to see what this was. And so he finally looked at me. He, I was the last person he looked at. And when I looked at him, I had a hard time keeping my eyes open. You know, I had a psych, psychological reaction is what happened. I was spiritualizing at the time, thought I was in a spiritual battle you know, like dark and light or whatever. That was what I was thinking at the time. But really, it was just a psychological reaction as I look back on it. So I've, I've heard looking, that he had control over some of his audiences. I've seen weird videos online. Oh, and as, they saw a, all kinds of things. But, but yeah. you know, in my studies of gurus, people see all kinds of things that they project or, or um, transfer. It's transference. It's called onto the guru. They will see golden light. They will see the guru levitate. They will see the guru change in form and from from, you know, a, a person to a blue god. I mean, Their astral people, body or something. Yeah, I've heard of that. People report all kinds of things when when this charismatic relationship is set up, you know. Yeah. So with yeah, Krem anyway, Krem stopped gazing at me, he threw his hands in the air. He said, that's it. That's enough. And he got up and he walked off stage. You know, so I said, well, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> No, I well, saw him. Again, I saw him again a year later, and I went through that gazing thing again with him, and I felt nothing. Well, within the Christian within the Christian community, people were interested in Krem as the Matria being kind of the representation of the Antichrist. Yes, yeah, so like I, I knew false. that. I, the, so the fundamentalist Christian community was yeah. very much into uh, like Tex Mars and uh, yes, 
Yeah. Um, uh, I, I knew some other commentators. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. The, the lady that wrote the uh, something, The Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow, Constance Cumbie. Yeah, Cumbie, yes. She was a real yeah. critic of the New Age, and I, I got to know her a little bit. Um, she she was a true believer in occult powers. You know, she believed yes. they were evil. Yeah. You know, I kind of emerged from that in the early 80s. I saw that this is, this is a construct of the human mind. You know, if you want to believe in it, it's going to affect you. And so I don't don't put any energy into it. And and when I stopped doing that, I mean, I have no effect from all of this energy being thrown at me by <laughs> all leaders. You know, I've always slept well. I'm very healthy. I'm 73. I don't take any medication. Oh, good you know, I, I rarely call out sick. So I don't know where the hell this occult power is. And I've been a critic of this stuff for for 40 years, you know. So well, if it's there. I don't know what's protecting me, but I don't get it. Well, one of the lines, one of the sentences from your book that I left in my notes was, we are easily fooled by experiential and somatic signs, as I would soon begin to learn as many former Mormons know. So like even these so-called changes are are driven by belief, I would say, physical psychosomatic changes. Would you agree with that? I I agree. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. Human beings function on trust. They function on belief because... There's a lot of mysterious things here in relationships and, and, and in the world, the science, nature world, you know, and in the social world. And, and, and we have to do something that sociologists call um, uh, plausibility structures in order to just reduce anxiety. You know, so we come up with stuff that might not be right, but we, we have to hold on to it to just get by day to day. You know, I mean, just simply put, you know, we put up a plausibility construct uh, construct that supermarkets have safe food to eat, right? right. And now we can't prove that every day when we go in there, or else we go nuts trying to prove it. But but we have a trust system built on that, and sometimes the trust system's wrong because the supermarket has to pull stuff that is toxic, you know, because the FDA discovered that this is not good, and they have to get it out of there, and people sue the company, and you know all that stuff happens. Um, but but we need to have belief systems. You know, uh, Plato called them, and I've mentioned this in my book, uh, pious frauds, you know, or, or, or noble lies. You know, they, they, they are almost necessary. Um, they're, they're not intentional frauds. They're, they're not harmful even. It's, um, and they might be useful. So, you know, I might be getting into odd territory here, but but there are people out there that are cynical about this. And believe that it's good to have people believe in a particular lockdown version of Islam or Christianity or Judaism or whatever, you know, in in an orthodox or uh, some kind of fundamentalist, bizarre way in order for society to be controlled, even though it's bogus. We have to hold on to it. You know, we can't change it. You know, and then you have these rigid societies like Saudi Arabia and North Korea, you know, as a result of that. Um, so the pious fraud becomes constricting, you know, it, it's no longer noble. It's no longer a useful way to run a society. Our founding fathers in, in the United States knew this, knew that the, the realities had to be constructed. What, what, and, and they were constructing one with the constitution. They knew it was an experiment. You know, it wasn't dropped down to, to us by God. This was a human experiment very much hopefully, you know, supported by a divine presence, but they knew it was human. And um, uh, and I think the wisdom of the U.S. Constitution is that it's flexible. It changes. It can be amended. You right. know, there are many things which, which were flawed in society back when it was founded. Women yes. couldn't vote. You know, blacks were slaves. I mean, there was all kinds of things like that that had to be and continue to have to be amended. You know, we can't stop changing who we are it has to remain pragmatic in other words and i think that's the the lesson i learned through all this is that 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 for human beings to be healthy they have to be pragmatic to some extent um they can't become fundamentalists they 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 can't lock into a constricted pious fraud or a worldview it's just not going to work in the long run it's going to break apart because human beings don't function well under that I mean, you can see Saudi Arabia, bust, Arabia busting at the seams over there. Women want to drive cars. Women want freedom of expression over there. And eventually it's going to break out. You know, it's going to happen over there. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. I mean, and you talk kind of about the four things about a cult, like transcend, 
transcendent or transcendent attraction, exclusive mm-hmm. authority, circular tension, exit perils, and dread to defect. So yeah. these are like those kind of, I would say, in that kind of totalist environment is mm-hmm. to have those things and, and maintain it. But we're at an hour, Joe. Do you have anything you'd like to add or anything I missed? Or can you talk about your also your social media contacts if people want to reach out to you? Uh, yeah, I, I started a YouTube channel. I don't know where it's going because it's kind of crude. You know, use my, my iPhone in my studio. Uh, I was encouraged to do it because of this QAnon thing out there to kind of comment on some of that. Um, what, what are your thoughts about QAnon? Um, you know, it, it, it's got a very crazy history. It has some roots in, in like I mentioned, in the, in the early fascist movements in the United States, which believed in these kind of same conspiracies. The I am certainly did. And so did the group I was involved in. I mean, I can almost see a version of, of my group and QAnon part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, QAnon also has attracted um, people that what, what I call wounded narcissists, people who maybe aren't that prone to really study government in its you know, it's real form, but we we'll want to believe that government is against them and their freedoms, you know, because it takes their money away in taxes. They don't know where the money's going. It looks like a mystery, like a deep state out there. Um, um, a wounded narcissist is someone that wants to blame other people for their problems, that their, their lack of accomplishment, their inability to function. And they also believe that their identity is going to be taken away. They're very insecure type people. All narcissists are insecure. Um, so, you know, they want to put up walls and they want to keep the immigrant out or, you know, they want to make it, quote, legal, which means very restricted as to who can come in and out of the United States. They, they want control of it. They want authoritarian control. That's what a, a, a wounded narcissist wants. Um, so I think that um, uh, if anything, you know, I would encourage people that, that hear this interview to kind of look into that, you know, see if they have some of that in them and, and uh, or other people that they might know, because most of these people that are involved in this kind of QAnon or, or whatever basically want to be good citizens. You know, that's that's the appealing part. They want a better world. That's the hook where if I was to do an intervention that's my my highway in, into their world where I can begin to explore, okay, you want a better world, you know, how do you see this functioning? And then start helping them through education, deconstruct some of their ideas and maybe improve on how they interpret the government, you know, or how they interpret um, uh, some of the stuff that's being fed to them through uh, social media that, that is, you know, completely not true. No, it's um, fascinating but, that you say that because it makes me think like that that QAnon, there's these missives that come out almost like from a cult leader. And then you have to really try to, you know, look at the tea leaves or the animal guts or whatever to try to ascertain what its meaning is. And it becomes kind of like uh, people are getting these rushes after trying to understand. And then they're on yeah. the inside. And then they're yeah. always talking about they're going to prosecute and put these people in jail and there's 65,000 indictments and Nothing yeah. ever happened. Nothing really ever happened. So well, it's it's it's, it's again. It's it's it, they're creating potential patterns, and people put the patterns together because we we are pattern making animals. So they take advantage of that. The people that are into this don't realize they're being taken advantage of. Um, there's a. I'll finish off with this. There's a book book which I recommend everybody read if they're interested in this called Brainwashing: The Science of Thought Control by Kathleen Taylor, and it came out within the last. 10, you know, decade or so. Um, um, and there's a section in there called a traitor in your skull, which basically means that our brains can deceive us because if we don't pay attention through judgment, how we're interpreting reality. And so there's, there's a lot of different ways that, that our better judgments can be bypassed using these techniques of throwing patterns at you or, or, or whatever to influence the way you think. Uh, it's fascinating to study it. You know, information is power. If you get the right information, if you get the wrong information, you're going to get information disease and you're going to be controlled by the disease. And there's a lot of information out. So don't get that disease information. What's your uh, your work? Are we contacted through Facebook, too? So you're on Facebook. 
in as yeah. much. So if people want to reach out to you there, and what's your um, what's the what's the book you're working on? Well, it, I don't really even have a title for it yet. Uh, you know, I'm just beginning to construct it, but um, it might take me years. Uh, who knows? I have a full time job, and it's hard for me to find time to write like that. But um, based on all my notes and all this, I, I probably uh, um, um, want to give a, a, a better handle on on the types of cults that are out there, you know, to kind of break it down a little bit into a systematic way of looking at this sort of thing and and maybe refine what I said in, in my memoir about the structure, you know, of, of how these work and and, you know, also just warn people, there's always surprises. You know, you might educate yourself. Um, there's one uh, book by Pratt Canis and um, um, Aronson called The the Age of Influence. Uh, and I think that's the title. Anyway, th- they state in there that to be forewarned is not to be forearmed. I mean, you can study about this, but you can get caught off guard by something that doesn't look like what you read about. And before you know it, you're down the rabbit hole. Right. That's a great point. You also have a novel as well, Mushroom Satori, right? Yeah. And that's also available. Mm-hmm. What a great interview. Thanks so much, Joe. Let people go read this book before you join any coercive <laughs> groups. So this will definitely disenthrall you before you need to be disenthralled. Again, the title of the book is Santa Fe, Bill Tate, and Me, How an Artist Became a Cult Interventionist by Joe Simhart Spelled. S-Z-I-M-H-A-R-T, published January 20th, 2020. So again, Joe, thank you so much for the interview. Thanks. Pleasure. Thank you, William, and thanks for asking me. All right, take care. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Okay.